Hello and a very warm welcome to the Reenactors Ramble podcast, ready to kick off our spring segment of episodes after a couple of well-deserved weeks off. And today's guest of the show is fellow RAF Reenactor, Bomber County resident and all-round good luck, Craig Paul. Good evening, Craig. How are you doing, sir? Good evening. I'm really good at the moment, yeah. Just uh, end of the day of work, so uh, nice to catch up. Yeah, definitely. It's been a couple of weeks uh, for us. We had a few weeks off um, being busy with work and stag do's and all sorts of things. So, you know, now the reenacting season is uh, is pretty much upon us now. The first events are, are sort of here for some of us and a few weeks away for others as well. So it's going to be good to to get back into a conversation and uh, and I guess a few elements of uh, RF conversation, which the both of us uh, have some mutual love for there, I think. Yeah, indeed. Definitely. And uh, and before we get started on, on today's episode as well, there is uh, there was some sad, sad news announced today that one of the uh, last remaining British D-Day veterans and Royal Engineer Commando, MB recipient Harry Billinge, has very sadly passed away aged 96. Um, and sadly, we've come to expect these moments over the last few years, but nonetheless, it doesn't make it uh, any less upsetting to, to hear about it. Um, and Harry was a, a truly incredible man. I'm sure everybody probably saw him on the news uh, a couple of years ago around the uh, VE Day celebrations and, and D-Day anniversaries. He's, he's generally been on the news uh, for quite a lot of that. He had a huge contribution towards the memorial at Gold Beach over there, which was unveiled, I believe, in 2020, sadly, during lockdown. But he was only one of four men from his 10-man unit to survive the Normandy campaign, and he made it his lifelong wish to contribute towards a British memorial in the landing sector, um, to which he helped raise an incredible £50,000 for. Uh, and his daughter today went on to say that he was a man that always gave his word and his word was solid, and that he always fought for what he believed in. And for anybody that hasn't seen it, I, I would uh, I would recall everyone to try and go to YouTube and, and just type in Harry Billinge, and there'll be a clip from um, 2019 of the Normandy anniversary in Versailles. Um, after seeing the memorial underway, uh, he, he went on to say that he was very sorry, and he got a little bit choked up, to which the presenter replied, you're absolutely entitled to, and that she was very, very grateful to him. And Harry went on to say quite uh, impassioned, don't thank me and, and don't say that I'm a hero. I'm no hero. I was just lucky. I'm here and all the heroes are dead and I'll never forget them as long as I live, he said. And a couple of weeks later, he read his favorite poem out on that beach. Um, actually, sorry, I think it was actually the year after, after the uh, memorial was completed. And that poem went, do not call me hero when you say the medals that I wear. Medals make us not the hero. They just prove that I was there. Do not call me hero, now that I am old and grey. I left a lad, returned a man, they stole my youth that day. Do not call me hero, when we ran the wall of hell. The blood, the fears, the cries and the tears, we left them where they fell. Do not call me hero, each night I stop and pray. For all the friends I knew and lost, I survived my longest day. Do not call me hero, in the years that pass. For all the true real heroes have crosses lined upon the grass. Now, if you listen to that, you can hear the passion in in Harry's voice, and he, he embodied what that generation was all about: values, strength of character, resilience, and optimism in the face of adversity. And I'm, and Harry, I'm very sure that every single listener and truly passionate reenactor in the hobby, you'll never be forgotten, and your efforts in your lifetime, both during war and in peacetime, will, will definitely live on forever. So, well, uh, I've got a little glass glass. So I'll raise that towards you, Harry, this evening. So yeah, a bit of a sad times, but um, you know, moving on. Um, how have you kept motivated, uh, Craig, over the over the last few weeks? Because it's been a difficult time of, of year. There's been lots of strange things going on. The the conflict in in Ukraine. Obviously, there's been events cancelled left, right, and centre. It's the kind of period where people start to sell up and think, should I, you know, do I want to continue in the hobby because they haven't had that, you know, recent spark of energy, um, which you get throughout that season. So, you know, how have you felt over over the winter, and and how have you kept motivated? 
Oh, well, the, well, for me, the, the, the motorcycle that um, I, I was purchased last year, that's been keeping me busy mm -hmm. over winter, uh, maintaining that ready for the season. Um, but I think just having two years of being cooped up, not being able to get out, has just built up that I just want to get out there and just get stuff done. Just yeah, just get out. I think the last thing I did was with yourself uh, at the mm -hmm. Bedwood before, and after that, it's just it's just gone quiet. So, um, with the little group I'm in, which is um, known as an airfield, somebody in England, it's only sort of four of us, but we we move around with all the other groups that um, that are local um, that you even get involved with, and um, yeah, we just pass ideas around and start talking about events and just planning. That's what we end up doing. We like, right, should we do this one? Should we do that one? Should we co contact them? Contact whoever, and just just passing ideas around and then before you know it, you're buying kit you know you promise to your wife that's it i'm not buying any more kit <laughs> and then and then through the door comes a blue beret and rf regiment titles and a battle dress blouse and she's like what's that and it's like uh yeah we're going to be doing this at this display so it's like get a tut and a roll of the eyes but um yeah <laughs> so yeah just building kit up ready ready for the year ahead so um that's kept, that's kept me busy you never finished. I, you know, I did the same thing. You know, I think about three months ago, I was like, I'm, I'm done now. That's everything. I've got everything I need, everything I need. And then all of a sudden something else pops up and you go, just this last thing. And then a week later, just one more thing. I did it today. There was, I was like, I oh, just need, needed something for an oxygen hose. And, and there you go. Before you know it, you're on eBay, bang, done. And you're like, I didn't need to do that, but I did also. It's yeah. just, the, the worst just for me was, was 1925 pattern kit for RAF. I promised. I got got all the uniform. I promised to my wife, I'm never going to do 1925 pack kit. She was like, "Why is that?" I was like, "Can't get cartridge carriers for love nor money. They are like unicorn tears." And then I think she walked into this office and on the desk were these two cartridge carriers. She went, "Well, then I was like, uh, reproduction because I through contacts <laughs> reproduction 25 pack and cartridge carriers." And then she was like, "Okay," and just left the room. And I was like. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. well, you're doing the right thing there you've got you've got to lay down the ground rules and mention that these things are really difficult the things that you don't have are the things that you need or want you've got to say oh you know those things are too expensive i'll never find them and then when they do come around i've got them really cheap and you know it just all yeah. helps i think yeah I, I'll, I'll admit one of, one of the things that i'd like to say is my little quirk um i used to have a little bit of a nickname in another hobby which was the quartermaster because <laughs> someone would be after a really specific or hard to find piece of kit and I'd be able to find it. So yeah, I'm I'm one for handing out bits of kit. Um, like with the the RAF aircrew kit, I've got a 1939 pattern fly, flying a jacket, Irving jacket, which I found in Edinburgh in a mm -hmm. charity shop, eighty pound, probably about good five deal. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Good deal. <laughs> yeah. So well, couple, if I can, put another zero on the end now. Yeah, <laughs> if I can find things, I'll find them. So, Craig, speaking of uh, finding things in, in, in bargains um, and hidden gems, we often get this sort of conversation on the podcast about how how did I find this item? Where did I look? You know, that I'm very lucky to find such things. But for me, I often find that it's to do with the volume of time spent. It's the variety of places where I've looked, both physical and digitally, I guess, as well across the Internet. Um, you know, I find that's just how it works. Do, do you find this a sort of similar process for yourself works? Yeah, yeah, you, you kind of like eBay is the best place I find, um, but more and more people look on that. Um, you've also got the um, just antique shops, charity shops, just rummaging around, just trying to find stuff and then not forgetting your fellow reenactors. There might be something that you're after and they might be just on your doorstep and they might say, oh, I've got one of them. You can have that and you can mm -hmm. bargain with them and, and get one of them. So, yeah, but you have to put time and effort. Um, there's a, an antique shop down the road for me. 
uh, warehouse at the back. I went in there and there was like 200 folding chairs and I sifted through all of them and found two Emily's remark chairs for like seven quid each. They, you know, they, they crop up on eBay for like 65. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just yeah. getting in there looking for, for stuff and just hunting around. And, and then when you're not looking around, just like looking on the internet at things for sale that you're not really interested in auction mm-hmm. houses, just to get an idea of the objects that are out there. Yeah. And it's, it's being mindful as well, isn't it? And being purposeful in that decision, because I think a lot of people just think that it's, it's luck of the draw and that it comes to people magically, but you know, you, you've gone in that warehouse and you've gone, I'm going to look in the back and then you've seen the stack of chairs and you've thought, I'm going to look through every one, you know, you've spotted that charity shop, uh, you know, in Edinburgh to find that urban jacket and you've looked in and thought, oh, I'll go in there. And you've looked past the, the terrible board games and the 1990s Ben Sherman shirts and, and everything else that comes in those terrible tar- charity shops. But you've then gone on to find the Holy Grail of, of urban jackets at the back. Yeah. And it's, it's that decision to just spend that little bit of time, that little bit of extra com- um, concentration on there rather than just thinking, oh, there's nothing in here. You know, car boot sales, you often got to go underneath the tables and root around in boxes, you know. Oh, and definitely. It's, it's even that, at, it's that, yeah. Even at Stonely, um, I did it one year. When, you, when you've got that table in front of you with all the nice, pretty kit, and then they've got cardboard boxes below just full mm-hmm. of, I'll say, tat, I rooted yeah. through there and I pulled out a 25-pattern, uh, marching out belt so it looks like a 37 pattern belt without the little buckles on the back mm-hmm. the guy looks at me in a fiver that's a 40 pound <laughs> belt every day and yeah and even putting together like um i did it for my wife when she did waf for her singing root around in a box get a brass buckle couple of buttons some a's and then so you've got you know as long as you've got a tunic to put it on you've got a waf uh, mm-hmm. get up so yeah just don't try sometimes you don't have to look for the complete set just get all the little bits and bring it all together yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of sort of some of these little shops and, and gems, um, your local area where you live is uh, is obviously, you know, it's it's vastly populated with with antique shops. Um, you've obviously got the the famous antiques centre down the road. So you live in in, in my mecca of Reynac, I guess, <laughs> which is you know Bomber County. So have you always lived there? And is the shopping you know fantastic all year round, just as it is when I visit there? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I've always lived in Lincolnshire. Um, from south of Lincolnshire up to the mid Lincolnshire, but yeah, it's yeah. yeah there's um, there's gems to be found in some of the antique shops and further afield, um, and obviously you've got Helmswell where uh, Danvers mm-hmm. was filmed, where that's like the Europe's largest antique centre. Um, sometimes the downside with those their places is they know what they're selling, so then they put mm-hmm. a price tag on it. So it's um, it's a bit of give and take, and just trying to find things. Um, online auctions are quite good if they're sometimes if they're not specialist. Um, I got a uh, early french cuffed tunic and that was only because they were selling a uh, 60s great coat and it said and tunic and then i saw the bottom of the cuff of the tunic and i went i'll give it a go put put a bid mm. in got it got it for 30 quid and then when i got it home I was like this is a mint condition jacket so <laughs> um, and yeah and then yeah living around in bomber county it's um yeah it's brilliant you know um i'm i'm well, as you know, I'm 200 yards from the bomb bomb store at Woodall's Spa, so I can walk around there, walking in the footsteps of people like uh, Guy Gibson, and and just imagining what we, what it was like then. Um, taking my son on a on a little adventure walk one day, and we sat there watching the sunset, and he didn't know that that was the last. It was the anniversary of one of the last times Guy flew from there, and and then yeah, you've got the pet word, and yeah, it's just history just oozes, and then working at Coningsby. Uh, walking past like the officer's mess, which has still got the camouflage from the war on the sides of the mm-hmm. walls. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just brilliant. It's unreal. It just sends, you know, it sends 
sort of shivers down my spine, let alone yours, you know, living on that area and, and obviously seeing aircraft pass over your, you know, your garden, but several yeah. times a week, probably. Yeah. Or once, a day. Once, once they're training up for uh, the air shows, they're up every day. You'll get, you get the, the Dakota going over the Lancaster, you get the, you get the Spitfires coming around and, the great thing is because you're so close to Woodall, when the Lancaster or the Dakota or even the Spitfires, any of them are flying past, they tend to do a buzz on the pet words. And when they mm-hmm. do the loop over, they come over the top of the house. And sometimes they're, you know, two, three thousand feet up. Sometimes they're like 250 feet as they come over. So, yeah, it's pretty cool when you have that flying around. As long, yeah. and, and as long, yeah. along with the typhoons, uh, main, main job there as well. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. A bit louder. It's almost like you're on private air show every it couple is, of days. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome, awesome, and and you yeah. live in a, in a you know obviously you've you've got um Woodall Spa RF Woodall Spa which is obviously a, a wartime base and uh, some you know some fairly important RF activity took place there during the war, um, namely obviously the last flight of uh, Guy Gibson he took off from there as well. But you also live in a particularly interesting area, Woodall Spa, which is specifically Kirby Moor Camp, which was home to the Seventh uh, Galloway Battalion, Kingston Scottish Borderers. Yeah, so yeah, that was uh, never planned. It was just, uh, we found a nice house in the woods and bought it. And it wasn't until a local friend said, you do know that this is the camp of the Kings of Scottish Borders? <laughs> and then, yeah, from there, um, started researching into it. And yeah, I've got uh, um, aerial photographs from the war of the place. I've taken yeah, so taking you around there when you came and visited. Mm-hmm. And you've got all the the brick foundations. When I've done sort of bits of gardening, I've pulled up ammunition, like bits of buckle, um, uh brass fittings for webbing foundations for nissan huts under my house you know yeah it's it's you walk around there and i think we, yeah, we found a, a, a boot sole that was just just kicking around and mm-hmm. it's it's interesting and it's just not everyone concentrates on the pet word and the the fact that the officer's message right there but the the majority of the people are just living in the woods in the huts and it's mm-hmm. and it's forgotten about until you you till you're there and the fact that the king and montgomery mm-hmm. walked sort of probably in front of my house you know it's just it's just yeah it's just weird to know that and and the weird link i have with it that my grandfather was in the army service corps on his way to arnhem and and supply trying to get to them uh on that long convoy and so when you sat here on an anniversary it's like that weird link and and then 40s fest when you get the pipers playing in the woods echoing out of the woods and you got the pipes playing yeah it just mm-hmm. yeah it does send shivers down it's fine yeah it absolutely does and then it's there's so many famous photographs, you know, I've got off at last of the book just on my bookshelf over there. And, you know, if you Google 7th Battalion Kings on Scottish Border, as likelihood is Google is going to serve you 70% of those images from that camp yeah. where you live, you know. Um, and obviously we've had a wander around and, and you can literally still see some of those places there. And I think what that taught me that day, and, and I guess for anyone listening that's not aware of that, um, Craig took us on a fantastic tour around um, the areas that you've uncovered so far around the camp, um, showed us, I guess, some to a degree now and thens of, of where we think some of the pictures were and it made me think about how much i guess uncovered history there is in this country on this soil as well that we just we take for granted that we never really look into too much because you could just walk past there you know a hundred times out of a hundred and you would have zero idea that was there and, and unless i mean obviously you bought a house there and you, and you didn't even know i didn't even know it was there no that was it, it it's you wouldn't you wouldn't know and you do get people walking by going what's with all the, the bits mm-hmm. of bricks just lying around yeah. in the woods because just yeah people just don't know and it's weird and and living you know by rf woodall spa in bomber county um living on the kosb's camp what kind of influence has that had on your you know remake career so to speak is that is that what's inspired you to sort of take down on the uh the sort of rf front uh so yeah the ref side of things is um having a father who was in the air force from like 
1956 to 1986. <laughs> he, did, he did he did a good long stretch. Quite a period. Yeah, um, he went from Hastings to fighter jets. So that's just a, a combination of things. But yeah, his influence living at RF Witterin for 25 odd years. Yeah, it's just and having paintings around the walls of, of RF stuff. It's just just ingrained in me. And my dad used to take me to Duxford every year. So yeah, it's just it's just ingrained <clears throat> it's just ingrained in my blood. Um, my wife's was in the RAF. My half brother was in the Air Force. Yeah, it's, it's in my blood. And yeah, my great grandfather was in the first war. My grandfather was in the second war with the Army Service Corps. So yeah, but the RAF is just—I yeah. think it's just a love of aircraft, and and that's just stuck with me. And the fact that there's so much you can do in the on the Air Force side of things is um, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. And being in Bomber County, why why walk around in greens when you should be in blues, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a different kind of thing for me, RAF. One of the reasons that I really love it is that. You know, I can do a, you know, let's say a, a Kingswell and Scottish Borderers impression, and but it's very difficult to connect without going to Arnhem or without going to, you know, potentially Kirby Moore Camp and wandering around the ruins of bricks. It's it's quite difficult to be relevant, you know, in a present day scenario as a reenactor, you know, doing some sort of infantry, unless, you know, again, you you are potentially there's areas where you can be in, you know, the eighty second Airborne, you can go to to where they were, the camped in in the UK and that sort of thing, or you can go to let's say um weymouth and you know do your second range impressions that sort of thing but for the raf it's a very very different thing for me because you can put on your blues you can put on your flying kit you can go to places like the petwood you can go to places like um you know east kirkby you know there's, there's these various uh, um, yorkshire air museum for example in elvington yeah. where i'll be in a few weeks time you can put that kit on and you can go essentially back in time so in terms of living history it's like you have a really unique opportunity with RAF that you just don't have in, in other sort of areas of reenacting. Yeah, that's it as well. Like the, the, the airfields, obviously they carried on after the war and, and, and if they didn't, they, well, some were ruined, but then some turned into museums, which is really Mm -hmm. good. But yeah, with the, with the army camps, apart from your, your big main camps for, for the big main measurements, all the smaller camps where they got dotted around, like Kirkmore, Rortmore, and, and that, they got handed over, I think it was to the Polish. And then once once the Polish left in 47, mm-hmm. that was it. It was just given back. So, yeah, those sites just, just disappear. Mm-hmm. But even RF Woodall now, you know, there's a little bit still the Air Force, but the rest of it's now Wildlife Trust Centre. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's only that they're keeping buildings for wildlife that, that they're around. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting thing, the RF, isn't it? I mean... You know, our our group has is, is recently just abandoned the art, I guess should we say evolved and, and, and you know, lost the US side of things and is concentrating on just British impressions and a, a large element of that is, is the RF because a lot of the guys have got into that. As I think a lot of the reenacting world is, is beginning to sort of move into that way, especially the, the younger side of things. But a lot of the questions generally come which are if I you know well basically it's it's either flight crew or service dress, you know. Um and it's this weird thing, isn't it, in RF where it's almost like you have to be, you know, you're like in the pub in a service dress. I'll just be doing flight crew and there's no real in between. And there's almost a bit of a snobbery, um, you know, which we've talked about previously with, with flying kit. And it's, it's just, just, it's just a strange thing for me that people don't really realize that there is a world to the way outside of flying kit really and flying impressions. So yeah, yeah. It's an interesting one. Lots of people just think it's just air crew and air crew isn't the only thing. It's obviously the easiest thing to get into because, it's so easily readily available in surface stores to get a modern surface dress mm-hmm. and the, the horrible flays of clock it and stick some brass buttons on it and, and rank. And then you're there. So it's really easy to do that side of things. But then people seem to think that 
because you're an officer, you must have flying brevet on, but not all mm-hmm. officers are, are air crew. And mm-hmm. there's just so much more in, in the in the RAF that isn't air crew. You've got your ground crew, um, gardeners, meteorologists, intelligence. There's just so such a wide range, fire crew, all that. There's just such a big range of uh, different yeah. different areas. And you don't have to do air crew. And it's the, actually it's the most expensive side of things mm-hmm. too. It's, oh my it's, God, crazy. You can say that again. It's just I, I I try I used to have kit loaned to me for the the harness and the the pack because I just couldn't afford it mm-hmm. and now I can I just I've decided I I don't need it I've I've got to a point where I I now feel I'm at an age that I'm getting too old to be air crew mm-hmm. and yeah absolutely and now actually you get you get more fun out of ground crew um than just standing around being air crew but yeah there's definitely a maybe it's from the back of the Britain side of things and and dare I say that that corner of reenactment that obviously the battle of britain the few they're bigged up so everyone wants to be air crew but yeah it's just it's just there's just more to that i just there's just so much more and it's so much more fun yeah you're totally right and it's a difficult one because with with flying kit it's like i guess you're totally right if you ask any child you know a child i mean if i think back to my own childhood my heroes of the raf were they were Douglas Bader, they were Guy Gibson, they were they were pilots, you know, they, they weren't, and it sounds awful, but they, they weren't navigators, they weren't bomb aimers, um, they weren't ground crew, they weren't meteorologists, they weren't these things there. So I guess there's always that desire to be, to do the Hollywood impression, I guess, you know, and I think you'd need to, uh, and we've discussed this previously, but almost like the need to get it out of your system to go and do that and to, you know, to, to achieve those, like, I guess, childhood dreams to an extent, you know, those juvenile thoughts of like, I want to be, you know, Douglas yeah. Bader and want to be in the battle of britain um and those sort of things and I, i'm sort of getting that out of my system now and, and then hopefully retiring it to a collection because as you say you know air crew were 18 to late 20s really you know and late yep. 20s even still you would have been you would have been old there but it's a difficult thing because like you mentioned financially it can cost you know i guess even as the most basic flying impression these days could probably cost you a minimum of two to three thousand pounds really just to you know be able to walk out in in that flying kit but it, it generally what you generally find in life is that when you've got that disposable income for a lot of people, it's not until they're in their maybe late thirties, forties, or even fifties. Yep. So you do get this weird thing in RAF reenacting where you have this sort of, you know, mid to late 50 year olds trying their luck um, with flying helmets and flying boots, you know, with all these wrinkles. And it's, it's an odd thing because I admire the kit being right, but it's like, if you don't look, you know, if you look 50 odd, then it's not really going to happen, you know, unless it's a very unique scenario. Yeah. And, and people always quote, that there was a, a 50 year old like bomber command pilot but there was like three or four of them the majority yeah. of them were like 22 and mm-hmm. and then like when when you seen them at, at railway events stood on a trackside in flying kit or walking down the high street of woodall spa or the pickering in flying kit it just didn't happen it just didn't i don't happen. get that i i only know I've been the great thing I have at Coningsby is we get the BBMF bring in veterans to do lectures, and we had a, a lecture from six or seven bomber command crew veterans, mm-hmm. and there was only one story where the uh, rear gunner spoke about how the plane got hit. He had a massive hole in the the side of the Lancaster. He managed to crawl back into the centre of the Lancaster. Mm-hmm. They landed at a satellite station in Kent, and then they couldn't get a, an MT ride back up to. Um, it might have even been Elvington, I can't even remember, but it was up in Lincolnshire. Mm-hmm. So they had to get the train. And then they got caught by the policeman. I think it was military police, in fact. And they all got charged for being improperly dressed because they were all in their flying kit. 
but that's the only instance I've ever mm-hmm. heard of it. So yeah, when you see people just standing yes. around and it's just like just take into account the the air the situation that you're in and just dress completely. Yeah, I'll be at crunch yeah, the I'll... weekend. I'll be in service dress. I'm not going to be in flying kit. Oh, it's a shame. See, I was I was so tempted to go down, but I've just I've got so much stuff going on at the moment. I could only make it for one night, and I'm like, is it worth a three hundred mile round trip for a, <laughs> yeah, for a one, one night? Yeah, maybe tempted me there a little bit. But I was I was going to ask that question because you know you we've mentioned the word snobbery around flying kit, and it, it it sometimes seems like people will will put it on at any single given opportunity that it's possible to wear it and. And like you said, you know, what, what are your thoughts on people wearing it to like a field event? You know, if you've got like the victory show or something, I'd actually not the victory show because there's aircraft there. That's aircraft silly, there, yeah. silly one to suggest, but you know, um, a war and peace, for example, and somebody's walking around in a flying kit, you know, what are your impressions on those sort of field based events and flying kit as such? It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's not, it's not great. Like we, we do in Cosford. Okay. There's aircraft around, but we, we were given a, a field, not a field area with a tent. We had no aircraft around us, so you, you, we maybe had a tent with some kit in it, like flying mm-hmm. kit, and then we just acted as a ground crew and maybe mm-hmm. one officer, and that was his tent with his kit in it, and we were ground crew getting it ready. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just someone walking around and there's no aircraft around, it just it'd be like it'd be like me and being dispatch rider kit walking around in breeches and a riding helmet with no motorcycle mm-hmm. in sight. It's a, yeah, it's a strange thing, isn't it? It's a strange old thing, and. There's a bit of me that's like, is it? I'm sure, it's I'm sure a hard you, one. I'm sure you know it when you do like the airborne side of things. You wouldn't walk down the high street of Woodall Spa or Pickering, say, or even Crouch in full jump kit. You, you, yeah, you wouldn't walk down there with a parachute on, you know, <laughs> strapped to your back. You, like, you, yeah. you just wouldn't do it. And and you see that happen as well. So it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, just, just, yeah, take into account surrounds around. Yeah, you want to show it off, but find the right event to show it off at you're totally right yeah you know it, it's no good having every single element i mean i'm trying to get some of the the, the final uh parts to the mayor west together at the moment but there's no point in going to that extent and finding all those little bits and bobs and heliographs and all those things to then like you said go and wear it on a railway platform because that mayor west isn't going to be very good to me when i jump on the train so you know it's a bit pointless so and like you say it's it, it if anything it doesn't make you better reenactor by having the best kit in an environment where you know, it doesn't suit. If anything, it makes you more a, a worse reenactor and somebody who's probably more concerned about showing off what kit you've got as opposed yeah. to doing the right impression in the right environment. I think I saw a photo for a local event around here. I don't know where it was. It was a railway event. It was a picture of an LAC. In fact, no, it wasn't an LAC. It was an SAC polishing buttons sat next to a group captain whilst <laughs> next to a sergeant in flying kit. <laughs> it was just like, ah. Oh. Oh my god! There's so many things. Where do you start there? That's a yeah. sort of terrible Renaissance painting that you would pick apart. And <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, was oh, like, I know, gosh. I know. We can. I know. Then you get. I've had it on pages where you're trying to give advice to people, and you say, "Can you like?" Someone puts up a photo of something, and you go, "This is you go really good start." And you always, I always put a thing like, "A really good start," but you've got the wrong boots there, or you know, you've put that insignia in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to help because if we better ourselves overall then you bring the whole standard of reenactment up whereas mm-hmm. i've had it where i've tried to help people and then you you get a oh you're just showing off your knowledge it's like well i'm trying to share the knowledge not showing it mm-hmm. off yeah and by all means if i've offended you by you saying i already know that well maybe perhaps before you ask or you put something up say yeah i know this and that is wrong and i'm improving on it so that we yeah. don't comment on it and things like that so yeah it's a 
Exactly. And, and speaking of education, you know, I mentioned uh, Elvington in, in Yorkshire Museum a, sh- a short while ago. So, you know, a few weeks time, we've we've got quite a few of our group members going there and a couple of the guys are really wondering, you know, what what can I do? So we've mentioned that there is this flying crew and this ground crew. So for somebody who was potentially going to an airfield um, where you've got that core bases around you, there is aircraft, there are buildings, you know, there are various elements like that. You know, what, what can some of these guys do if they're not going to be air crew? What specific roles could they be if they just had a service dress? If you've got service dress, um, throw on a simple uh, belt and um, jerkin and, and you can you can act as ground crew. Simple things, really basic clipboard. It doesn't even have to be a clipboard. Maybe just like a bit of hardboard with some mm-hmm. paper on it, some documents. Um, that's the start. Um, take a newspaper with you. You know, you can, you can sit and read a newspaper. Mm-hmm. I've done it. Don't polish your buttons the night before. Mm-hmm. Just take your kit, not take your kit dirty, but you can sit there at a chair just polishing your buttons for a part of the morning. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, because then people come around and look at you doing that. If you've lost a button or you've got a spare button, take your your sewing kit with you and sew a button on, and you can mm-hmm. do bits of that, and then just coordinate with the other people that are there and go, well, what what scene can we do? Mm-hmm. Um, take a bicycle with you just cycle around because that was the main mm-hmm. transport on station you know there's, yeah 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 there's just so many little things you can do like that uh try and find some old photographs maybe some aerial mm-hmm. ones or yeah if you yeah. can't get them find some online and print them off you can go on to mm-hmm. the national archives and print off aerial photographs yeah, yeah. even if they're just of local airfields because mm-hmm. the, the public might the public will look at it and go oh, it's an airfield you could be talking about a german airfield Mm-hmm. Oh, it'll, anyway, take, yeah. it'll take a keen-eyed person to go oh mm-hmm. well that's actually this place you know completely yeah so, and then and even then though it could be you know if it's, it's it could be a navigational training and uh, conversation exercise and there's all sorts and people forget that you know the majority of these folk would have lived on the airfields at the time you know in listen huts and, and various places it's very rare that you would have lived locally as well so you know that like you said there's there's so much that you would be doing that isn't necessarily flying related you you don't have to be fixing an engine as such either um you know there's all sorts we've mentioned meteorologists earlier you know you might, you might be discussing the weather you might be analyzing photographs that have came back recently you know and i understand as well that y- you don't always have access to you know potentially a nice darkened room where you might be analyzing photographs and negatives and so on and so forth however you've got to live within your means and even still you know pouring over maps or photographs outside is still you know more relevant than just it's, doing nothing yeah. yeah just yeah just just doing something you know even have a chalkboard just a plain chalkboard just with something written on going a, a person A is going to be servicing this part or inspecting this. And mm. Yeah, just it's just all those little things just set the scene. You know, I spent mm-hmm. I spent was it um, the last time I was at East Kirkby um, before the night run the, the previous event, um, which I think was Lankan Tanks. I spent the whole day servicing a pair of drum brakes just on a bench. And people came up to you and I was like, ah, oh, right. And some people try and offer advice on how to service your drum brakes. Um, but yeah, and, and it was it was an activity and people came and looked at you and watched what you were doing. And mm-hmm. and even even when I have been at East Kirby and I've managed to spend the night there, um, just don't don't rush to get dressed before the public get there. Maybe get your trousers on, have a, a plain white shirt on and walk to the toilets and go and brush your teeth with a towel slung over you. Mm-hmm. And it just takes people by surprise because it does yeah and it adds to the scene and i think i would argue that you know yeah eating your breakfast outside you know before you're polishing your buttons or having a cigarette or you know that sort of stuff like you said a towel around you just with your braces on walking to the bathroom 
it provides probably more insight into what life was actually like on these airfields than it does by just potentially standing there and not really doing anything, you know, in, in your SD, for example. Yeah. And put your finger, put your hands in the pockets. Just do it. Yes. Yes. Just do definitely. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At times where you get, get take your hands out of your pockets, it's like it actually happened during the war. Yeah, it's like, and even Jesus. even at Con- even at Coningsby, modern day, I've yeah. I've got a photograph kicking around somewhere from two or three years ago of Prince William and the station commander stood watching the BBMF with their hands <laughs> in their pockets. It happens. There you go. There it's, you go. It's a national service thing when mm-hmm. you have made take your hands out of your pockets. But yep. during the war, the day Guy Gibson's like standing around chatting with his hands in his pockets. It happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, do that. Stick a pipe in your top pocket. I don't smoke, but I stick a pipe in my top pocket. Mm-hmm. Just adds it was that a impression, thing. doesn't it? Yeah, and you and you can even have like uh, you can have some crew chilling out under the plane, and then it might be the flight lead might be having a chat with the mechanics because they might be going over something that's wrong with the aircraft or some prep. Mm. Um, and then you've got the armourers as well, which is just another whole area which I've yeah, not even dared yeah. delve into it myself. It's, I mean, that's an excitement, isn't it? And that would be something which I think is dare says is possibly very rarely or ever been done you know i've never really seen anybody i mean because i guess by nature of it trying to find the ammunition in the belts and you oh, know just trying to get a sort belt of, of 303 is just <laughs> horrifically expensive nowadays yeah, yeah um, absolutely crazy ble- blessed at east kirkby and um, one of the other guys uh neil who's produced all these reproduction bombs uh, have been involved once or twice where we've got hot ladders and we're winching up the reproduction bombs into the mm-hmm. into the lancaster at just jane um but um just getting hold of like little fuses just you can get hold of fuses on on ebay maybe if they're inert just or um you could be didn't have to be an armor on the aircraft you could be have a line of 303s you know if the if the group's got 10 or 12 303 Lee enfield bring them along and then you can mm-hmm. sit there stripping them down and servicing them because that's something yeah. someone would have done it wasn't just mm-hmm. arming the aircraft you were keeping the uh the small arms uh completely man, uh, maintained as well for the for the station definitely and how important do you think it is craig for um you know for that display or that impression that you're you're coordinating as a group to have a very specific time period oh yeah really important because you don't realize until you start sitting down and looking at everything that the the air force was rapidly evolving throughout the entire period of the war um so there's there's things that you know, I've got French, we'll go into that French cuff uniform. I will only wear that 1940, 1939, because mm-hmm. after that, it probably became your best blues. So you probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have worn it for everyday wear. Um, the battle dress, obviously, war service dress, should I say even. Um, that came in a certain period. But yeah, they did mix it up a bit. But it's all it's just just making sure that you've got a, a good good mix. You don't want 20 sergeants there. You want to be honest, and I've started to do it more now, um, I, I did have a uniform with every rank on it, and I've now got about three or four no rank on it, because if you're the lowest of the low, you don't get away with everything, but mm-hmm. you get to do more, less responsibility, I guess you could say. But if you've got mm-hmm. three three or four sergeants there, and no LACs or no corporals, it just doesn't look right, because there it's wouldn't be... It's isn't it? Yeah. yeah, you've got to get that balance of, of the rank structure right. You don't have to follow a strict rank structure and order people around, but just to have the look of a rank structure is just a start, mm-hmm. and, and that helps out as well. Yeah, definitely. And and I guess the other thing that helps with it, with a date is that the, the benefit that we had with, with RAF in terms of documentation around it was that it was you know primarily all documented or not all sorry that's the wrong thing to say but with bomber command the large majority of it was obviously based around the uk um 
so the the amount of picture evidence that we've got is numbers in the, what, the tens of thousands of imagery. So you can just go to Imperial War Museum's archives. You can look at squadrons. You can look at years, months, dates, airfields. And, you know, I was looking at um, May 1943, Elvington, um, last night, and, and and probably within 10 minutes, like you mentioned earlier, pulled off 40, 50 original images in the space oh, of two or three months from that airfield, you know? Just, there's so much out there. I, You know, the stuff I stumbled across, and I haven't seen this one before, and I've spent hours on the Imperial War Museum. And then uh, another untapped resource, um, and I'll let it out there, is uh, International Bomber Command Centre at Lincoln. Mm. They've, yeah, got yeah. The, they've got access to the Leonard Cheshire Archive. Um, mm. And that was one of the things I did at Audle Spa was uh, when we did a display there at the Petwood. Um, I went to the Leonard Cheshire Archive and I got 10, 20 photos of what was going on at the Petwood. And we had them on a board. And even the owner of the Petwood looked at them and went, I've never seen these before. Mm-hmm. Because they were from the private archives of Leonard Cheshire and some of the crew that were there who had just donated them all. And they hadn't gone to the Imperial Museum. And now they're being digitized and coming up. And there's some there's some fantastic photos that are, that are on there. It's just like wafts just relaxing on the lawn in front of the Petwood, mm-hmm. um, and some of them Amazing. are in like summer dresses that wafts, but they're in the like the summer floor dresses because that's what they did when they waited on the uh-huh. waited on the the crew. They weren't in like whites. They were there just in just summer dresses, just mm-hmm. serving. So, yeah. um, and it informs your decision, doesn't it? And it makes it easier because you know it's. You can then, if you find a picture on that airfield of that particular date that you're re- reenacting or representing, and you know there's an image of if twelve guys sat there all with a certain rank and doing certain things with certain things on the table, your job is done. You know what yeah. props do you bring? What ranks do you have? What roles do you have? It's all there. You it's know, you pictures. find an image there. Yeah. Exactly. It just makes and, it so much easier. And never go for that unique thing just because there's one guy <laughs> who's got something really, really different that stands out. Don't do it because everyone does it and then you're not mm-hmm. you, it, it's not you, you just, i think people try to do it to be unique but actually it's best just to, just to blend in because if it you is, blend in yeah. you're, you're more realistic if you're that one guy that i don't know has a, a weird way of wearing it because you've seen it in a photograph mm-hmm. then it's good that you've got it there as evidence but at the same time it's just don't rely on it all the time Completely. And I, I'm like that across the board. I'm like, I, I generally try and stick to sort of the default, you know, if something was started to be issued in January and it was, you know, it, it was stopped being issued by June, you know, for me between February and May of that year, I'm going to be wearing what was default issued to me just because I find that that would be the most common thing um, alongside imagery as well. Because I mean, one of the, my sort of bugbears to a degree as well is, is, is flying boots, you know, like 40 pattern flying boots are, are what we see primarily used from, you know what 41 to 44 probably you know if you look at most bomber command pictures that's what you will see but you know you you get people who if it's 42 onwards won't wear anything but 41 pattern boots and if it's 43 onwards won't wear anything but 43 pattern boots because of the name um irrespective of you know the the short lifespan when they were went to testing when they were actually issued from vice versa you know and i think just five minutes of research and imagery of that period will tell you a very different story to you know perhaps the the name of the item in question the name the name that's it yeah i've got um fantastic photo where i work is uh 41 squadron in 1946 and there are 10 pairs of 36 pound boots one 40 pound boot and one yeah. uh 44 escape pattern boot because why not they wore them just yeah just because it's that time period it's like um i've sometimes done a ace Kobe when i have done air crew i wear a pattern a pair of mark three a's and mm-hmm. because the name inside of it i looked him up he was a Lancaster pilot that joined in 1944 and he was issued a pair of Mark 3As because that was probably almost at the back of the storeroom. 
Yeah, I completely. You do. I mean, I've 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 got uh I've I've got a D type mask with a forty uh twenty one um microphone. You know, the guy didn't qualify as a pilot until nineteen forty three, and that that's what he was wearing. You know, and yeah. people are saying, "Oh, it's it's too early to wear that." I'm like, well, this is what the guy had. This is what he was issued, and he didn't qualify until forty three. So. Yeah, it's like that, it's that thing where people jump on this going, oh, this was made in 1940 because the Air Ministry Sam says 1940. It's like, it was made in 1940. It might not have been issued till 42. Completely. Completely. And, I mean, even the, the things like uh, um, Irving Harness suits and things like that. I found a picture the other day of, of early 1942. Uh, a, a crew stood outside uh, an aircraft with, with a load of those things on. And, and most people would say that they weren't worn in 42. You'd be wearing Sidcots or just, you know, whatever it might be. But no, you know, they were still worn. Definitely. And moving and moving on, Craig, to you mentioned your work earlier as well. So you, you've got, a, I guess, a bit of that crossover with the RAF um, in your day-to-day life as well. So it seems like you just can't get away from it. Oh, no, I can't get away from it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, working on a, a Typhoon Squadron at RAF Coningsby, um, a historic even uh, Typhoon Squadron, is um, really something. Um, I, I was blessed to be part of their 100th anniversary um, to the extent that their anniversary tale was something I designed for them. Mm-hmm. Um, which stems from another hobby of playing flight sims and doing digital artwork right. as well. Um, and just being involved in their 100th anniversary was something. You walk down their corridor and the first thing you get to is the first photograph of the squadron in 1916 or when they, yeah, when they were created as an, a Royal Flying Corps. And then as you go down the corridor, you've got their, I'll call it their kill list, but their score sheets from the first war. Wow. And then the next one is their score sheets from the second war. And then there's photos of them during the interwar period, right the way up to, through the 1950s, 1960s, up until the present day. Um, just by the front door, which I still baffles me, is a glass cabinet. But I've, I go in there when I'm bored. I can pull out all the ops reports from 1939 <sighs> to 1945. Wow. I, I would look at the ops reports that they did during the Battle of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um and when I when I was helping with some of the display boards for in the, for their anniversary, um, up in their archive, I guess you could say, um, they've got uh, folders with like details of all the pilots during the the war. Um, and I've held Eric Locke's score sheet signed by him. Wow! You know the highest scoring ace in the Battle of Britain, mm-hmm. and I and I've held it and gone, this yeah, this is just history, and it's all just there. Every you know, all the fame, uh, Tom Neal's score sheets, you know, um, he was briefly on 41, but even his, um, Hood, another famous 41 squadron pilot, mm-hmm. um, who was lost on a really tragic day for them. But yeah, all these famous names, Bamberger, um, just, they're just there and I can just hold them and look at them and the squadron are quite chilled about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting that, that you've got, you've got these Typhoon pilots, uh, uh, I'm going to say, oh, they're cool. They're Typhoon pilots. They're fast jets. Um, and every now and then you'll get one of them that suddenly asks you a question and then you go, ah, oh, there is a little bit of you or a little bit of me and you. They, they don't, sometimes mm-hmm. they like to admit it, but at the end of the day, all of these people that are IF pilots at some point were probably a little pilot like us. And instead of going into reacting, they got a pilot's license and became a, yeah. a fighter pilot. Um, so that's quite nice. And then the added bonus of the BBMF being across the road as well. Um, when time has allowed and they're not too busy, you can just wander over there and just walk into the hangar and you're surrounded by Spitfires, Hurricanes and the Lancaster mm-hmm. just sat there, um, which is some of the little perks of being in the job. Um, only just the other week when we had that lovely week of a heat wave in, mm-hmm. in March, yeah. I just I was walking down to, I still call it the Naffy, it's not that now, but I was walking down there and the Spitfire took off 
and the sun it just I just I actually did just stop, closed my eyes, wow. sun shining on my face, and you just hear a Merlin going by and it's like summer's here or it's mm. coming and the season's yeah. coming and it just that's another thing that just gets you gets you oh, warmed God, up. Does, yeah. And even yeah. when I'm working from home I can hear the Lancaster and the Spitfires take off from Coningsby. You're wow. under the, I'm under the flight line here when they do uh-huh. circuits. Uh, a memorable a memorable day was being sat sat on the roof repairing the roof of the house when I first moved in and the Lancaster came over at treetop. God. And you're just like, Yeah, this this is cool. This is cool. It is. And uh, I, I was gonna ask you a question a little bit earlier about, you know, why why, you know, why still RAF after all these years? And I think you've just you've just summed it up there for me is that it doesn't matter how many times you go to an event, but as you just mentioned, that late summer sun, Duxford, East Kirkby, wherever it might be, Merlin engines, whether it be on the ground or, or taking off, you know, and oh God, you, you put all the sights and sounds and smells together, wearing the kit, it's just, it just brings sort of yeah. spine tingles, I think, just thinking about those evenings. Whenever, whenever the Lancaster flies over here, the hair's always raised up on the back of my neck. You just mm-hmm. can't. And even just knowing, you know, where I am, yeah, this is what it would have sounded like during, well, 10 times that, not just one like us, there would have been 50 or 60 flying over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that noise still, yeah, just resonates. It just, yeah, it never get old. It, it does, doesn't get, it? And you'll think it'll get old and then you hear it again, you go, no, yeah. It just never will, will it? I mean, I'm always, I always recall, and it happens every single year. Um, you know, I used to live in London, so Duxford for me was was about a 45 minute drive, something like that. So it was, it was sort of my local. Um, and now when I go to Duxford for an event, it's it's a good sometimes five six hour drive. Um, and by the end of that five six hour drive on a Friday evening, sometimes you're uh, you're leaving your wits end a little bit irritated, shall we say? And you come off the roundabout of the M11. And usually in September, it's about sort of half six, seven o'clock sort of thing. And the sun's just starting to dip down and you have a little look. And, and usually at that point, um, all the spits are up. Some of the other spits from different airfields and Biggin Hill that are staying there for the weekend and have come and landed. And they're usually just having a bit of fun. There's 10, 12 of them flying around and you just see them dipping in and out of the sun, you know, and you're driving down music on and all of those feelings of irritation and I oh, can't be bothered it disappear because you've just got those sounds and sights of Merlins in the sun as it's setting and you just know that you're driving in for a fantastic weekend, a couple of beers with your friends, wearing kit. And and that's, that's you know, all that disappointment that we mentioned earlier in like that winter and trying to keep motivated. That's that's what it's all about, isn't it really? Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and even at the end of the day, you know, you've got those, those uh, promenaders that perhaps don't wear the kit right. And, at the end of the day, I, I something I've learned through through just life in general, just forget all those negatives. Think about the positives. You go, well, I've done a, yeah, I've done a bloody good job. I've put on a bloody good display. People have come up and asked questions, and then you, what what is there to feel bad about? And it's just it's just, uh, it's just something really nice. Um, there is sometimes a little bit of smugness, I'll admit, when you get that one person that comes up and gives you that good prod in the chest and goes, "Did you earn that?" And then you go, "Well." I'm not in the Air Force, but I work on a fighter squadron. And then and then yeah. it just it just deflates them. Or you go, Yeah, my father was in the Air Force, my grandfather was in the army, great grandfather mm-hmm. was in the army. It just yeah, it deflates them all. I think I think one we had it once where I was with uh, my fellow marine actor, um, who is a squadron leader, two hundred mm-hmm. yards from me where I work. And my wife, who is a corporal or was a corporal in the Air Force, and we were stood chatting one day, he's Kirby, and he came up and prodded all of our chests and it was like well, I'm a corporal, I'm a squadron leader, and, I, and I'm a civilian contractor in the Air Force. And then it's <laughs> not, not the, 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 the look drains from their face, but it's in like, ah, I can't, yeah, I can't question. They, there's something, I don't know what it is, but sometimes with the general public, they really do like to go. 
Have you Peter, said? it's strange, isn't it? It's uh, do you know, I actually think it is, and I think it's it's a degree of, of, of jealousy that they're you're you're probably doing something or wearing something that they wish that they had the opportunity to do, and they've never quite been in that scenario. Like, there's probably a little bit of me that you know, if I was to bump into a pilot at an air show or something like that, I'd probably think, oh, look at that arrogant person. He's not. It's just because I wish I was him. That you know, that that's, yeah, that's probably yeah. sort of what it is to a degree. And you mentioned and, and a great point. I think point. there's a bit of pride Go- of them for their uniform. Yes. They probably wore that uniform at one point. They've got some pride and they might look at you and go, oh, I think you're right. Don't prod me in the chest. Go and prod the man over there who's got a scrambled egg on his hand and SAC. That's yeah. the man you want to prod, not yes. not, not us. Because we've put the F in to get this right. Completely. And you mentioned something earlier, Craig, just about... Um, you know about those promenaders and, and people who perhaps have, have been to the Soldier Fortune and, and bought the uh, the full RAF catalog, or you know perhaps been on uh, on eBay or Facebook Marketplace and bought their full nineteen nineties uh, service dress uniform, complete with Queen's Crown uh, cap badge <laughs> and, and all that sort of stuff as well. But as you mentioned earlier, I think um, what we've learned for the last few years is, like you said, life is just too short to be worried about them. You know those people. You know, and if and at the same time as well, like. I'm, I'm the older I get, the more I'm starting to. I still don't like it, but there's a bit of me that just thinks, if that's what makes them happy, you know, and that warm fuzzy feeling that we've just mentioned about seeing the Merlins and all that sort of stuff, and the summer sun coming down and wearing that kit, if they get that same happy feeling from wearing a 1990s post-war uniform and it brings them happiness just to be there at a railway event, then so be it. You know, I don't agree with it. I don't think it's good. I think they should educate them and learn themselves, but let's not worry about yeah. them. Let's I let them have their yeah. day in the sun. Yeah. And, yeah. Don't, don't mind them doing it. Um, I hope they, they'd they like to learn and develop from it because we've all been there at one point. We've, we've probably all been there. Um, and then we've learned and developed. We're there to educate. And and as long as the, the events that hire us, so to speak, and, employ us to employ us or request us to be there uh that's the thing you need to know as well but, well mm-hmm. they didn't go to those guys over there. they came to us because they know that we do it we mm-hmm. do it proper and we do it right um and you know for me <clears throat> not doing a railway event it's fine um doing historic things like east kirby that's great uh some of the ones that get, really get me the buzz are going to things like uh anniversaries um i did the 100th anniversary of Cranwell and the old Cranwellians. Mm-hmm. We had 1918 RF uniform all the way up to 1980 present mm-hmm. day. And the great thing was then walking and going, I remember wearing that like PT shorts. I remember mm-hmm. those. Oh, I remember that wash kit because we had loads of it in that lineup. And then some people go, What is that? And you go, well, That's a Russian blue. And just them going, I've heard of it. I've never seen one. And just things like mm-hmm. that. Just, yeah, just. I like being, that's another side of it, not dressing up, but just being like a museum to go up to events. Yeah, yeah. A group of you, you know, I, I don't have all the kit and another person have a kit, but combined you can do your timeline and you can go yeah. somewhere and then you are like a walking museum and some officers' messes and things like that. I really love it when you show up with a with a display and you're like, you've just solved all their problems. They don't have to mm-hmm. do all the research. Completely, um, yeah. It's that, it's that collector side of things coming out there, isn't it? And I think that's, I think you find a lot of that in RF reenacting that there are, a lot of collectors, you know, as well as reenactors in that world. I think the good RAF reenactors are generally half collector, half reenactor yeah. as well. I, I'll admit that. So I started off as a reenactor, and I'd say I'm half and half. I collect now, mm-hmm. and and I I'll, I I I see things and I go, ooh, uh, is it my size? Yeah, I'll get it. Um, if it's too small, maybe too big. I'll leave that to someone else. But um, yeah, uh, I'll admit that's one of my bonuses I have being a five foot five, thirty six inch chest person. 
I can get kit Perfect. a lot. E- I can get water so kit a lot easier. Yeah, um, and seeing seeing those larger sizes shoot up in price because everyone wants one is um, yeah. That's one one thing I'll I'm a little bit swag about. Like, I, can, I can just no. That yeah, is that is very very that very side. convenient. And on a on a slight side note, but similar as well. Um, you've enjoyed flight time in a in a B twenty five as well. So so just yeah. how was that, and how did that come about as well? Uh, so. My wife's sister, so a sister-in-law, lived in California for five or six years with her husband. And we went over there um, just to see her. Um, and I was at the... It was really weird. So um, we'd planned our trip and everything. And we were going to do like LA, travel up to San Francisco. And then just outside LA, near where uh, she lives, um, is a airfield called Camarillo. Uh, if not say it wrong, I'll say Confederate Air Force. It's not that anymore. Commemorative Air Force. And uh, they had an air show on, and it was on my birthday. And we went, should we go? Yeah. Rocked up to go to pay our tickets, and then they went to my wife, "Oh, you're a you're a veteran." She's like, "Well, serving." And they went, "Walk on in." So that was the first thing. Mm. They just just that's a completely different thing in America. You're mm. serving, walk on in. And I was like, "Do I need to pay?" Like, you're the husband of a serving person. I was like, "I kind of work in the air force as well." And they're like, "Yeah, yeah." And you go wandering around enjoying the air show came up to a stall with a b25 there sign that says b25 flights and it was something like 500 dollars mm-hmm. quickly scurried away in the corner did a little bit of conversion it was like that's like 250 odd quid at the mm-hmm. time or something like that and the wife looked at me and i looked at her and i perhaps got a little like sly grin on my face and she's like it is your birthday go on then so uh <laughs> yeah we paid and uh yeah, it was probably about an hour, hour and a half in a B twenty five over California. Amazing, Re- really strange crew. Um, not the crew that flew it, but um, <laughs> there was me, uh, a New Zealander, uh, two Americans, and three, Jap- and three Japanese people as well. And, and the guy's like, "Whoa, this is just like." And I think actually there might have been a German there as well. Um, yeah. And it was just like this. You've got a lot, hey, real flush. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it was, it's just amazing. You obviously we had to sit there for for takeoff and i was sat behind the pilots as pilot and co-pilot sat behind sat in front of me and i was sat next to another guy under the mid turret took off and then once they got the gears up front they gave you a thumbs up and that was it you were free to roam so wow. straight away up in the mid turret look around get get through the little tiny tunnel which i think i was probably the only person that could do it the right. tiny tunnel under the co-pilot cause it's like a little uh-huh little aluminium tunnel into the nose where the bomb aimer's position was and the front front turret i guess you could call it and then you'd get a shout you'd crawl back crawl over the bomb bay because it's it's all enclosed you crawled through a probably like a three foot high gap into the tail section where the waste gunners were got to look at the waste guns and then through another little tunnel into the tail section where you could sit in the tail end and yeah just flying on a sunny day over california the dream just in a B twenty five, yeah. You've ticked most things off, then, haven't you, Craig? There can't be too much left to uh, to go. I'd, I'd love a Spitfire flight or a Mustang. Oh, that was the other thing. They had Mustang flights, but they were all fully booked. Six hundred dollars <sighs> for a Mustang flight. Oh man, that's just the price of fuel, I guess, over there as well. Yeah. It's so much cheaper than than over here. Yeah, and I think yeah. insurances and all that kind of stuff are just just mm-hmm. less of a problem over there. So um, yeah, no, that was that was that was nice to tick off. Yeah, um, I'd love to, I'd love to go over there and do a display with uh, you know. With, with them they, they had you know they did the u.s air force and the airborne stuff and when when i saw a little reenactment display they had there at the air show and said oh we do RAF." now they were just like no one does it over here in the states 
and the ones that do do it badly and things terribly, like that. So, because obviously they they probably rely on the same sort of sold fortune. So, yeah. Um, what price yeah, we suppliers? Because mm. I guess we're blessed with the surplus, mm. and that is in this country. You don't get the RAF surplus over in the states. So completely. Um, yeah, I'd love to do a bit of traveling around and doing displays in other countries. Yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? That would be the dream. Um, and speaking of displays, what what plans have you got for the uh, the upcoming twenty twenty two season ahead? Uh, so was going to be Shuttleworth on May. However, that's gone completely silent. <laughs> we con our group contacted Shuttleworth to say, "Well, we can do. We are the only group that could do interwar nineteen twenties mm-hmm. to nineteen thirties. You've got the aircraft. We'll spare." And they're like, "Yep, yep, fantastic." Uh, we'll be in touch, and we've poked them a few times and deadly silence so unfortunately that one's just uh That's a shame gone to one side uh, um east kirkby lanka tanks military machines um dependent on what happens with the military vehicle it's a military vehicle association because they supply the tanks and obviously mm-hmm. they've they've gone down the route of uh, the same as the railway station so are they going to show up uh east kirkby yeah. we shall yeah. see but we'll be there anyway uh, in what guys i don't know um that's constantly evolving woodle spa um the, probably the only public kind of event that we do i guess sort of a promenade event where we'll be mm-hmm. uh outside the petwood um doing our thing um i think we're going to be doing our regiment this year um trying to depict perhaps what the rf regiment might have been doing mm-hmm. around about woodall spa perhaps um so that's taking a bit of research um i think just i think and then it's not very many i think it's because I'm, I'm missing cosford so our group's doing cosford but i'm on holiday um i think we're going to be doing um pacific RAF in the pacific so okay, lots of khaki drill again another we, we always like to do little little different things um mm-hmm. uh, i think that's it about it at the moment it's i feel like there's not that many events but mm-hmm. um with east kirby being so close i'll probably be there time and time again yeah so, yeah any opportunity yeah um i'm sure uh Gary and the crew will probably uh, string us up to do something. So, uh, yeah, um, not very many events, but um, just enough to, to keep going. And then there'll probably be some Balibrin dining in nights. They always come along uh, locally. Mm-hmm. Not so much reenacting, but they might just say, oh, can we have a vehicle outside or can we have a little yeah. display where we can put a few mannequins up for them, um, which I don't mind doing a lot. I actually sometimes enjoy that a bit more often. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, Brilliant. but it sounds a like events, a fantastic but, season ahead, yeah. But yeah, just just a few events, but just enough um, to uh, to keep me interested. With kids, it's a little bit hard to do things away, so uh, it's uh, kept quite local. Well, you're definitely blessed with uh, with local events, Craig. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. And if not, I'll be when the sun's shining. I'll be out on that RAF bike driving around all the old stations anyway. So fantastic fantastic well thank you so much for your time uh, this evening craig and loved, loved hearing all about uh you know where you live your, your, your interest in the hobby where it's come from what your plans are for this season as well um i'm sure lots of reenactors out there will probably meet craig um I'm sure everybody wants is dying to get to east kirby after uh, in many towns we've discussed it on the podcast as well so um yep craig we will put your instagram handle as well uh, down in the show notes in the description as well for anybody that wants to see some of craig's fantastic collection uh, and his lovely motorbike as well Thank you.
cool and well thank you so much for listening everybody uh, we've got lots of exciting episodes uh, coming on the way we're going to be dis- discussing gliders and the glider pilot regiment uh, we're going to be discussing a little bit of a controversial one which is alcohol in the hobby uh, its Ooh. contribution and whether it should have a place in the hobby and so much more so tune back in very very soon we're also going to dive a little bit more into the specifics of RF flying equipment for anybody who's looking to take that plunge and is hopefully under the age of 50 otherwise Craig will tell you what <laughs> um, but thank you so much for listening everybody and we'll catch you all again very very soon.